The scripture tonight is from Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 14. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your guard, your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fall. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure in my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, Then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amy. Let's take a moment and uh, pray. And ask God to help us rightly understand this part of the Bible. Please pray with me. Father... Help us now, we ask you, to take in this thousands of years old text and understand it for our day now, for our time now, for the things that we are facing in our life now. We pray that this passage of the ancient Christian scriptures would motivate and inspire us to care for those who are needy among us, to live and act justly in our worlds And we ask also, Father, that you would empower us to do this, not because we're guilty, not because we are proud, but empower us to do it by your grace. 
by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And help us, Father, tonight to be able to connect those two things, how we are to live justly in this world and the gospel. What do those have to do with each other? Lord, help us to understand that tonight, we ask. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, our beloved Savior. Amen. In the 4th century, uh, in the empire of Rome, uh, an emperor came to power whose name was Julian. Julian is known to history as Julian the Apostate. Not a fun name to go by. I'd rather be Julian the Conqueror or Julian the Wise. But he's Julian the Apostate. And the reason is because at that time in Roman history, Christianity had been on the ascent for some time and it had become in many ways the dominant religion of the ancient Roman world. And Julian, when he became the emperor of Rome in about the year 330 or so, 340, wanted to squelch Christianity. He was a hater of Christianity. He was opposed to Christianity. And so he sought in his rule to create, again, passion and enthusiasm for the ancient pagan religions, for the worship of the ancient Greek and Roman gods, and to get people to stop worshiping Jesus. This old rabbi story from out of the middle of nowhere in the Roman Empire. Julian failed in that task. He was unable to squelch the momentum that Christianity had in his day. Why did Julian the apostate fail to wipe Christianity out? Well, that's a really interesting historical question. Some of you may be more interested in the answer to that than others. There's a lot of good reasons, but one for sure and very important reason why Christianity was not wiped out by a ruler who wanted it wiped out, even in a place like the ancient Roman world, is because Christians in the ancient Roman world were known as a people who lived and acted with justice with justice in the society in which God had placed them. There's even a very famous quote from Julian, the emperor, to another Roman leader that he wrote. And here's what he says about Christians. Listen to this. Julian wrote, Why do we, why do we see that it's Christians in their benevolence to strangers and the holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase Christianity? He says, it is disgraceful that when no Jew, and he means by that Christian, when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans or Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. He's lamenting the fact that Romans, particularly the Roman government, some things never change, can't take care of their poor But the Christians were doing it very, very well. They were known, even in the highest rungs of Roman authority, as people that loved the impoverished and the oppressed and the needy among them. That's in many ways what we're talking about in this series that we began last week called Kingdom Come. It's a five-week series that we're going through. And last week, we talked a little bit about what the kingdom of God is. And we saw that the kingdom of God, which Jesus in the Bible talks about all the time, is, is the inbreaking of God's future reign, of what the world's going to be like one day. The kingdom of God has broken into the present in Jesus and in the people of Jesus, those who have committed in faith to follow him. And so your job, if you're here and you're a Christ follower, is to to live out your faith in Jesus as the Savior of the world and to live out the values that Jesus and his kingdom share. 
one of those values very clearly presented to us throughout the scriptures is justice. Justice. And that's what I want to talk about with you tonight, just for a couple of minutes. Here at Christ Church, we're a young church, we're a new church, and we're seeking to, we're seeking to be a people by God's grace, who love justice and who act mercifully and justly. We're not just here to have a nice worship service every Sunday. We're here to, we're here to get things done. We're here to make an impact. We're here to create change as God's grace pushes us forward in this world. And this chapter, Isaiah 58, that Amy read for us is, is one of the great chapters in the whole Bible on this theme of justice and God's passion for it. So what I want to do tonight is show you four things from these verses. The importance of justice, the meaning of justice, the result of justice, and the way to justice. Okay? The importance of justice, the meaning of it, the result of it, and the way to justice. So here we go. First, the text talks about the importance of justice. Now, this is a very old book, Isaiah. And some of you, as this was being read, might have been like, what in the world is going on? Who's talking here? Here's what's going on. These first few verses are telling us about the ancient people of God, the Old Testament church, which is the nation of Israel. And Isaiah is prophesying here, and he's saying that these people are crying aloud. They are praying. Look at verse 2. They are seeking God daily. They want to know God's ways. They're, They're worshiping. They're fasting, we read later on in verse 3. They've humbled themselves. We see presented for us here a people, listen, a people who care a lot about studying the scriptures. A people who care deeply about prayer and communion with God. A people who are so disciplined in their spiritual devotion that they are willing to go days and days in fasting. These are a religious bunch. These are a group that if you're a conservative believer in Jesus today, you would have wanted to be like in many ways in the ancient world. And yet we read that God, for some reason, is not hearing their prayers. He's not responding to their fasts. They've asked him in verse 3, why have we fasted and you don't see it? You see that there? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Why aren't you listening? Isn't our devotion enough for us to get access to you, God? And God answers them. The reason that your fasting is not seen by me, he says in verses 4 and 5, is because in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure, God says. In response. And notice, he says also, you oppress, you oppress all of your workers. The sort of devotion that God is after is not a devotion that leads us to self centeredness. The sort of devotion that God is after is a devotion that leads us rather to other centeredness. And here's the bottom line God doesn't care a bit about your fasts and your prayers and your righteous rituals and your religious observances if it is not accompanied by a concern for justice as well. I mean, that's very clear in verses 6 and 7 especially. God says, is not this the fast that I choose? Isn't this the devotion I want from you, he's saying? To loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless into your house. If you claim 
to love God and follow God and you don't care about or practice justice, then according to the scriptures, you're either a hypocrite or a liar or both. That's how important justice is to God. And it's not just in Isaiah 58 that we see such strong language used. Jesus himself uses this language all the time, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 23, for example, he's talking to the religious leaders of his day. Again, people that were very concerned for being uh, in accordance with the scriptures and were very fastidious in their religious observations and rituals, and they fasted and they tithed. And he says to them in Matthew 23, Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the former. And in Matthew 25, just a couple of chapters later, Jesus tells a story. It's a parable. And in the parable, he talks about sheep and goats. And he says the sheep are those who, when Jesus comes back to judge the world, will be those that Jesus says, come into my eternal rest. You will be with me forever. And the goats are those to whom Jesus will say, I, will never, I never knew you. Depart from me. And in that parable, Jesus says that you know you're a goat when you have said, I didn't care for the hungry person and give them food to eat. In fact, Jesus puts himself in the picture. He says, when I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. When I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they said, Lord, when did we see you, hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick? And then Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least one of these, you did not do it to me. The way that you care about the needy, the poor, the oppressed, and the impoverished is an extremely clear reflection about the way you care about God. It can't be denied. Do you see what the scriptures are saying here? If you don't love the poor and the needy, if you don't practice justice, it doesn't matter what you say. You don't love God. If you don't do these things, you don't have a vital and real relationship with God. You'd merely have a a religious, formalized relationship with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a famous 20th century theologian who was also a spy involved in a plot to assassinate, assassinate Hitler. And he was also um, a pastor. I am not a spy, just a pastor, um, as far as you know. Um, and one great thing that Bonhoeffer did was stand up for those who were being oppressed in Nazi Germany, which was obviously many, 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 many people. And the church in Germany in those days had begun to fall away. They had begun to follow Hitler and do whatever Hitler says. And Bonhoeffer's significant amount of his writings are devoted to this idea of caring for those who are being oppressed, caring for the needy, caring for the poor. And at one point, Bonhoeffer has this famous quote where he says, Only, who, only he who cries out for the Jews may sing Gregorian chants. Now, Gregorian chant is a form of worship in ancient days, in 20th century Lutheran Germany. Only the one who cries out for the Jews who are being oppressed here may also go to church each Sunday and pretend to be religious. Justice is so important that the Bible and Jesus again and again say that the way you relate to the needy and the poor and the oppressed shows how you relate to God. Justice is the grand symptom of the condition of your heart. Justice is the index, it's the barometer 
of what your relationship with God truly is like. And if it never develops in your life, then you don't have the relationship with God that you think you have. The importance of justice. Second, the meaning of justice. We see it's important. What in the world is it? What does it mean? And this is where, frankly, to be honest with you, church, this week I was, I was stunned. And I think I learned some things as God worked on my heart as I studied the scriptures. In, in America, in the Western world, we typically think of the idea of justice as, as equity, as fairness. It's, it's concerned with people's individual rights being protected. We want to think of justice as, as freedom from constrictions that would inhibit our own personal freedoms. And indeed, that is true. Uh, the Bible right here in Isaiah 58 says that oppression of workers is not a good thing. That's unjust. The Bible all the time talks about not taking a bribe and making sure that those who are ruling in the world rule without partiality. That is certainly a part of justice. It's making sure that people, no matter how much money they have or no matter how much political pull they have, making sure they're treated fairly. It does involve fairness. It does involve equity. There's undoubtedly truth to that. But in the scriptures, it means more. And this is what struck me this week. I have to admit, um, studying this over the week surprised me. The word in the Hebrew that's translated for us, justice, is used literally hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And uh, mainly in the prophets and the wisdom literature, books like Proverbs. And I looked at a lot of those instances this week and came to this conclusion. Justice is not just wanting equity and fairness. It is also actively pursuing generosity and compassion, at least in the Bible's view. In other words, you're not acting justly when all you do is hope for everyone to be treated fairly. That's part of it. But acting justly, according to the scriptures, also requires us to be people that are showing mercy and charity. It requires, if we're going to be just, acting to help the least of these. Bruce Waltke uh, is a very, very well-known Old Testament scholar. This guy spent his life, you know, 50 years now studying the Bible. And he has this amazing commentary on the book of Proverbs that's relevant for this point because he defines justice like this. He says that in the Old Testament, the just are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. In other words, justice involves a willingness to sacrifice your own welfare for the welfare of the poor and the needy. It involves recognizing your obligation to others and not just yourself. And listen, we see this in Isaiah 55. Look in verse 7. He doesn't just say here, God. (laughs) This is God, not Luke, not Isaiah, God. He doesn't just say You should pursue fairness for the needy and the hungry. He says, if you don't share your bread with them, if you don't bring the homeless poor into your house, and when you see the naked to cover him, then you aren't acting with justice. Look at what he says at the end of verse 7. How can you, if you want to be religious, if you want to claim to know me, hide yourself from your own flesh? Now, this is amazing here. That word in verse 7, homeless poor, that refers to an immigrant, a foreigner, someone who was traveling through ancient Egypt. And here Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah says that to act justly means to treat a homeless poor immigrant as if they are your own flesh, as if they're your relatives, as if they are your 
family. Living justly is not primarily just about protecting my rights. It's about treating a refugee, a foreigner, a needy stranger in the same way you would treat a member of your own family. That's what the text says. Another famous story um, that Steven Spielberg made into a movie a number of years ago is Schindler's List. You remember this movie, some of you. It's one of the great movies ever made. And it's another Holocaust movie. Sorry for the downer tonight. But it's very relevant to the idea of justice. Oscar Schindler is this man who, during the World War, Second World War, uh, wants to make his fortune in Germany. And so he actually, actually he moves to Poland and has sort of his factory and industrial work going on there. And he employs all of these Jews because Jewish labor is much, much cheaper under the Third Reich than German labor. And he's making millions and millions of dollars. He's getting rich. But because he's got a lot of money and a lot of power, he has all sorts of interactions with the Nazi elite. And he gets to see the horrors and the, the terrible things that the Nazis did, especially to the Jewish people. And his heart is turned towards them. And he begins to, rather than use them, really as functional slave labor, to make more and more money for himself, he begins to, in very sly and very crafty ways, work to save them through his corporation, through his company. And he ends up saving over a thousand Jews. And there's one point at the end of the story where the the Schindler Jews are being taken out on the train, finally to safety, where Oscar Schindler, played by Liam Neeson, just breaks down weeping. And his colleague, his associate, looks at him him and says, what is wrong? Look at all the good you've done. And he looks up at him and he says, I could have done more. Look at this pen. This is gold. That's two people. I could have sold my car. That's ten more people. I could have done more. He he undoubtedly probably could have done more. But the fact that he gave up his own advantages to serve those who are disadvantaged means that he is one of the most remarkable demonstrations of justice that we have today. Justice doesn't just mean you hope everybody gets a fair shake. Justice means you work to make sure that others are cared for well, even if it costs you something. Can I tell you what stunned me this week? What really pricked my heart? It's this. We in America, especially if we're followers of Jesus, so often are obsessed with our own individual rights being protected to the extent that we neglect the care of those who don't have the power, the voice, or the authority to stand up for their rights. Yes, our individual rights are important. Yes, we should work to protect them. But we should work to protect them so that we can protect and serve those who can't work to protect theirs. See, that's what justice in the scriptures means. It's super important to God. So much so that he says, I don't care what other religious stuff you want to throw my way. If you don't care for the needy in your midst, get out of my sight. It's super meaningful in the scriptures. It's the demand for fairness and for equity as well as charity and just generosity. And I want to show you thirdly what it leads to. What are the results of justice? Look in verse 8. Then, first word, transition. Here's what it leads to. And all the way through verse 12, we see some 
Amazing words here. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Then your healing shall spring up. Then your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. This is amazing prophet language here, you know. If you pour out yourself for the hungry, verse 10, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. Your gloom will be his noonday. The Lord will guide you. He'll satisfy your desire. He'll make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Listen, the bottom line is if we concern ourselves with justice and acting justly, we will have the favor and the blessing of God. And if we fail to do that, we will receive the fatherly discipline of God. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that when you act with justice and care for the poor and needy, that's what's going to make God happy with you. No. This is written to people that are already followers of Jesus, written to people who have already been saved by faith. To say that God accepts us in his sight because we've cared for poor people goes against the grain of the rest of the scriptures. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is if you have been saved by faith, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you believe in the gospel of grace, and there's no evidence of justice in your life, of caring for the needy, of reaching out for the oppressed, then maybe your claim is something that you should re-examine. And I'm also saying that if you want to grow as a believer, if you want to experience more and more of some of the things that we're writing, that Isaiah is writing about here, if you want to experience the glory and the face of God's presence, if you want to understand what it's like to have increasing intimacy with Him, if you want your spiritual life with God through Jesus to be a delight, then one of the great ways to grow is to go out and serve those who are impoverished, those who have need, those who can't stand up for their own rights. The results of justice are very, very clear. I mentioned earlier that we at Christ Church are just now at the point where we're trying to provide multiple opportunities for us as believers to go and demonstrate mercy, charity, generosity, and justice in our city right here in San Antonio. Talk to Jimmy if you want to know more about that. Check out the city. There's all sorts of stuff that's going to be coming up for us to get involved so that we can more and more understand what it's like to have God as a loving father. We act with justice not so that God will maybe one day be pleased with us. No, we act for justice because we know by faith that God already is pleased with us. And he calls us to go out and not just stand still. The importance of justice, the meaning of justice, the results of it, and then finally, the way. The way to justice. Or, how can we live like this (laughs) and be like this? Are you feeling guilty yet? Listen, I've, I've made people guilty in my life, and I've made myself guilty. I do not want to motivate you. I don't want to motivate myself by guilt because, guess what? It won't work. Um, and that's not how Jesus motivates us, actually. But it's really easy to mistake the main point here in the sermon. It's easy for us at this point to think to ourselves, okay, yeah, I want God to love me. I want to have a good, intimate relationship with God. I want to do what's right. I'll add charity to the poor to my list. Charity to the poor, prayer, go to church, tithe, do this, do that, do that. And maybe, maybe I'll experience the sort of intimacy that Isaiah's talking about here. That's the temptation. But listen, the entire point of Isaiah 58 is to critique exactly that kind of thinking. 
That's exactly what the people in the first couple of verses are saying. They're, they're trying to pressure God into loving them based on what they do. They want to believe that God owes them because they've lived a good life. That's the default. Listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or if you're just coming to understand Christianity, here's what you need to get. The default status of all of our hearts is to turn inward into that sort of self-centeredness. The way we by nature are is to think that if I do X, Y, and Z, then God owes me. God owes me A, B, and C. If I have enough credits in the good category so that they outweigh all of my bad debits, then God must accept me one day. And that is absolutely not the way to live a life. And more importantly, it's not the way to gain and to be accepted into God's favor. Listen, the way to justice is not just to try to add caring for poor people to your never-ending spiritual to-do list. That's the way we tend to motivate ourselves. We either motivate ourselves by guilt or by pride. Guilt says, man, I sure do feel bad about all the money I have relative to all the people in this city that don't have any money. And I sure do feel bad for not really thinking about that very often. And Pastor Luke has brought up some good points here tonight, and he's really made me feel guilty. I guess I better sign up and go serve so that I won't feel so terrible about myself, and maybe God will like me a little bit better. That's guilt. It might work for a while, but it won't work for long, and it'll make you miserable. Pride says, I'm going to go care for people because that's the way I was raised. And I'm going to show my children how to be raised properly. And I'm going to teach them to care for people right as well. If you're caring for people because that's the way you were raised, you need to re-examine the way you were raised. Because all that is is saying, this is the way it's supposed to be done. This is the way I was taught. I'm going to be motivated because most people aren't going to do it. I guess I'll do it. That's pride. The way to justice is not by guilt and it's not by pride. The way to justice is by grace. And really, it's the only way to justice. The only way to live and act justly is to grab a hold of the good news of the gospel by faith. How does that work? Here's how it works. You will only care for needy, poor, and oppressed people when you understand that that is exactly what God, the person who had, who had the least reason in the history of the universe to care for people that hated him. That's exactly what God did for you. You will only really be motivated to care for the poor and the needy when you understand that you are more poor and needy than all of the material poor people you see in your life put together. Your heart is so empty and broken without the love of God that there's no way you can ever fill it up with any other thing that you're pursuing in this life that's going to bring you satisfaction, that's going to bring you peace, that's going to bring you life. Only when you know that God, he didn't just serve the poor, he became poor. God didn't just go out and care for the oppressed. God himself was oppressed. God didn't just care for the homeless. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. You see, God cares so much about poverty and justice, both spiritual and material, that he entered into it himself. The richest being in the history of the universe, the one who made 
the universe, the one who owns all things, including our lives, that God, the one who at this very moment is allowing you to draw in breath, the one who at this very moment is dictating the moon and the sun and the stars, the one who at this very moment upholds the universe by the weight of his majesty, that God slept on a rock. That God had to beg for food. That God was a victim of the greatest bit of injustice that the world has ever seen. The one man who truly was innocent was a victim of a a mistrial and a miscarriage of justice and was nailed up onto a cross and died alone. Even his own heavenly father turning his back on him. And he did all of that. He emptied himself of his riches and became poor so that we in our poverty might become rich. And so that we, now that we have the riches of Christ, can go out and serve and love those who are spiritually and materially poor and broken, just like God himself did. Only when you believe that God himself became a victim of injustice to secure your forgiveness and favor with God, will you go out and delight, delight to serve the needy and the poor in our city for the sake of God's glory. Then you don't do it out of guilt. You don't do it out of pride. You do it, as Jonathan Edwards wrote, in The Nature of True Virtue and Charity and Its Fruits, those two books. He, he says you do it out of sheer delight at knowing and seeing God. When you know and see who God is and what he has done for you, it can't but take you out. And in your own small ways, seek to do the same Brothers, You see, the gospel and the gospel alone allows us to say, I am going to disadvantage myself for the advantage of the needy, not because it will make me feel better, not because I feel social guilt, but because I know deep down that that is exactly what God did for me. And because I am so grateful and pleased with how much God has served me in Jesus, I can only try to mimic his service in living justly and caring for others. Only when the beauty of what God has done for us in becoming poor and oppressed to secure our liberty, only when that's seen by faith can we then begin to live and act justly towards those in this world who need it. The gospel changes everything. It frees you from your own poverty. And it frees you from guilt and pride and enables you to go serve others not for what you will get out of it, but ultimately for what you have already gotten out of God. May it be so with us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us that you allowed a miscarriage of justice to take place in the death of Jesus, that when Jesus died on the cross, Father, he was left alone. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He had nothing to his name, no earthly possessions, no 401k retirement plan, no life insurance, nothing to leave anyone else. He was completely void of possessions and all alone as he lay dying on the cross. And Father, in that moment, you are in pouring out your wrath against human rebellion on Jesus. You are actually showing us the greatest demonstration of love in the history of the universe as well. You were willing 
to allow Jesus to go through injustice and oppression so that we can be rescued out of it. Help us to believe that Jesus did these things freely for us, God, that he willingly willingly gave up his life so that we don't have to give up our life. He willingly died so that our sins can be paid for. And he was raised up again from the dead to give to us new life and new power through the Holy Spirit. And Father, as we believe that, help us to see the importance of justice in your eyes. Help us to see you in the needy and in the hungry and in the naked and in the poor. And Father, help us to be propelled outward through the power of the good news of the gospel to serve them to love them, to care for them. Not so that we can feel better about ourselves, God, but because we want to serve as living demonstrations of how gracious and merciful and kind you are to us. Father, we pray that you would help us to do these things faithfully. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.